Hello and welcome to this ASVO podcast, a series of open conversations with inspirational people in the wine industry who share insights and perspectives on their careers, life experiences and expertise. This episode is a collaboration between the University of Adelaide Weight Research Institute and the ASVO and aims to create opportunities and convivial spaces for people to connect, provoking comment and conversation. Today, we are continuing our chat with Professor Kerry Wilkinson, Dr Julie Colpert and winemaker Alex Cassegrain on Smoketane. In our previous episode, we spoke about managing bushfire events and the impact of smoke on grapes and wine. And today, we'll dive into the mitigation of smoke taint. I guess as we learn to deal with bushfires, there are many things that are being trialled and some are successful and others less so. Uh, Kerry, what are some of the initial trials and things that were explored and, and how effective were they? I guess some of our early research started off with uh, mitigation in the vineyard. Um, I can tell you about a couple of things that didn't work. Um, so we tried washing grapes, thinking that we could just wash the ash or the particulate matter off and, and mitigate smoke taint that way. But actually it looks like smoke compounds get into the grapes really quickly. So even if you're applying that washing treatment during smoke exposure, it actually doesn't help. We still get smoke tainted grapes and, and therefore wine. One of the other things we trialled was defoliation of grapevines, either before or after smoke exposure. Um, and while we did see a, a small decrease in the intensity of smoke taint where we removed leaves before smoke exposure, ultimately we still ended up with, with smoke tainted wine, so that treatment doesn't work either. One of the other trials we did was to look at um, applying um, kaolin, so a, a sunscreen material, to try and prevent the uptake of, of smoke. We had some success with kaolin where we got good coverage on the on the grapes, but you know, where it wasn't sticking to the grapes properly, obviously the, the smoke still got into the grapes and, and, and caused a taint. But Julie, I think you've done more work on, on that, sort of, uh, that sort of trial. Yep. So work I was involved with um, at the Australian Wine Research Institute, we were looking at a range of existing agricultural products. So what's out there already that's commercially available that winemakers or um, viticulturists can get their hands on straight away and can they apply it in the vineyard to help so that's things such as pest control products or um, sunscreen protectant. So like as Kerry mentioned there with Kaylin, um, antitranspirants as well. So we applied them to the surface of the grape and then we exposed them to the volatile phenols implicated in smoke taint. And then we were looking at whether it would actually still be um, those volatile phenols were still taken up by the grapes or not and in comparison to a control. So what we found was there was no silver bullet. There was nothing that was really effective at trying to um, reduce the uptake. And in fact, some of those more oily products were actually um, exacerbating the problem. So we saw greater uptake. We also did as kind of like a positive control was applying some activated carbon to the surface of the grape because we know activated carbon treatment has been successful in scavenging those volatile phenols. So whether that's in, a, in an actual wine environment or in environmental applications, um, there's lots of other industries where they've had success with activated carbon. Um, the biggest issue there is, as mentioned, even Kerry said, the coverage. Getting these products onto the grapes can sometimes be quite challenging, and if they are solid materials such as activated carbon. So we did see some slight reduction in the uptake with activated carbon, but the biggest issue was, yeah, getting the, the good coverage. 
And while we know that certain, say, pest control products, if you get 80% coverage in the vineyard, then that might be quite effective. It may not necessarily be in the case of smoke being present and the implications it might have for uptake. But I know that Kerry's done a little bit more work um, looking at activated carbon um, rather than just putting it on the surface of the grape. So maybe you'll want to elaborate further on that, Kerry? Yeah, well, so we've done some work with not so much um, activated carbon in, in a powder form, but in a, in a fabric form. Um, so in collaboration with a, a US winery, we've been trialling this activated carbon fabric, um, enclosing grape bunches in the fabric. And what we found is that it prevents up to 95% of the, the smoke volatiles getting into the grapes and has a, a really significant um, protective capability. The problem with this activated carbon fabric is it's quite fragile, so you can tear it quite easily. And so obviously if you've got holes in it, it allows the smoke in again. But the bigger issue is obviously we can't go out into a commercial vineyard and apply bags to every bunch of grapes. So what we're working on now is trying to take that to a more commercial um, application where maybe we can apply a fabric that incorporates that same protective capability to grapevines and then it stops the smoke getting into the, the grape bunches, um, therefore mitigating smoke taint, but in a way that, you know, we don't have that tearing issue and, and trying to find a, a functional way of, of being able to use that to, to prevent smoke exposure occurring in the vineyard. That sounds all very interesting. Alex, it, it appears there's some difficulty in getting a solution that, that works well in these commercial settings. Is, is there something that you've tried? So for me, it was very much seeing what we could obviously do in the winery. So we, we trialled what we could with the bucket ferments to an extent. But doing it in a commercial setting really does change the dynamics because you're trying to achieve a, um, a wine that you're going to be able to put on the market. And... For me, the idea of stripping either the juice and or the wine, I couldn't really see the benefit out of out of that. So for me, it was more important to try and build up on the wine, do what I can to reduce the amount of time, I guess, on skins for red ferments, but I guess also trying to change the fermentation kinetics and trying to exacerbate more fruity and fruit-driven wines as opposed to more the, the more traditional style that we would normally do. I guess it did uh, change a lot of what we would normally do and then a lot of it, you know, we did have some success in and and others didn't go as well to plan. But then again, the you know, different vineyards had different exposure to smoke, had different levels of smoke taint and also different different surroundings as well from where the bushfire originated from. So I guess the goal really for mitigation is in the vineyard first. Um, but in the previous podcast, we talked about some things that growers can do Julie, could you give us a quick recap of those? Yeah, so some of the things that you can look at you know, in regards from harvesting, do you therefore do hand harvesting? You try and minimise the breakage of the um, the skins and trying to process as quickly as possible. And by excluding leaf and stalk material as well, we can stop further extraction of those smoke taint molecules into the juice um, and also looking at minimising skin contact and doing things in, at low temperature as well. So really trying to minimise the extraction of these smoke tank compounds. They're probably the the main ones. And, you know, if, I think Kerry touched on it last podcast was in regards to maybe with a red style, instead of doing full bodied, you'd look at doing a rosé instead. So you do minimise that skin contact. I think also in terms of, yeah, free run juice, if um, you're going to minimise smoke tank compounds if you're using free run juice. So if you're using heavy pressings, you're going to end up with more smoky 
um, product in the end. So they're the kind of things that you can look at doing before you start thinking about any additions. So obviously then we can start looking at finding agents. But initially, before we start adding anything, there's there's a few options. So moving from uh, the vineyard, uh, Kerry, could you uh, help us understand things that we can do to mitigate smoke taint using the grapes? Sure. So one of the trials that we've done um, using grapes, smoke-affected grapes that have been brought into the winery is to look at whether or not ozonation treatment can help mitigate uh, the impact of smoke exposure. So what we found was post-harvest um, ozonation can reduce the, the concentration of, of those smoke taint marker compounds and the intensity of smoke, but it depends a little bit on the concentration of the ozone um, and it's not necessarily that the higher, you know, the more ozone, the better. Um, some of our lower ozone treatments work better than, than higher ozonation treatments. But it also, again, very much depends on the, the level of smoke taint that the grapes have seen. So while it worked with moderately smoke-affected grapes, where we had heavily tainted grapes, yes, it reduced the sensory impact, but ultimately we still had a, a smoke-affected wine. That's one treatment you can try with smoke-affected grapes. Um, and then I guess there are there are treatments for juice. Julie? Yeah, so in terms of juice, what we've had the most success I use lightly <laughs> as a word is activator carbon. There are some enzymes out there that I know some suppliers might be saying is good for um, smoke-affected juice um, or wine. But we know with glycosidases, which are looking to remove the sugar units from those bound forms. So the glycosides, if you remove a sugar unit, you're going to release the volatile phenols. Uh, but in a juice matrix, those glycosidases aren't effective. Just with the high sugar levels, they tend to inhibit the actual enzyme. So they're probably the couple of things we have looked at. Activated carbon, looking at different concentrations. So adding different concentrations of the actual activated carbon. We've tried a couple of different grape varieties, so both Chardonnay and um, Pinot Noir. And really it just comes down to treating it to a level that you're not going to completely strip the juice of all its goodness. So you take out, you know, unfortunately activated carbon, it's not selective. We, we can't selectively remove the, the actual um, smoke tank compounds. It's going to take out those other aroma and flavour compounds that are good. So it's about a balancing act of adding enough carbon that's going to reduce some of that smoke taint without necessarily completely stripping it. So high concentrations, you're going to strip out more of, of the good compounds. And and if you add too much, you'll end up getting a wine that's very sort of spirit-like. It's really just has that ethanol rather than having all the other flavour and aroma compounds. So minimal amount of activated carbon at juice stage. We know from there are case studies out there where wineries have treated with small levels of activated carbon and and they've had some good outcomes, you know, in regards that they still have a product that they're able to use at the end. It may not be ideal, you know, a product that they can sell just is, but it's something that they could look at blending away with other material and um, get it out on the market. And I know that that has happened in the commercial setting. So Alex, that brings us to you as a winemaker. What is your experience in in treating the juice post a bushfire? See, for for me, when we were going through the bushfires, there, a lot of the information coming out was suggesting that it can remove either some of the compounds uh, that would potentially be problematic post fermentation. But there wasn't a number per se as to say if you had fruit that was X amount of or had an X amount of glycosides and conjugates that will end up being 
this is what I'll remove, you know, a percentage or so a lot of it was I guess anecdotal from from my our point of view or my point of view, we couldn't determine at what point was too far for smoke taint. And again, with the whole idea of stripping, what we found in the trials that we did, or the bucket ferments, were that it was removing using various rates. We we found that it actually, uh, like Julie said, removed and stripped some of the wine, but the smoke compounds became more obvious and more um, prevalent in that finished product. So that's where we, you know, we 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 also did the the trials with the enzymes and 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 whatnot and. Yeah, we end up finding out that whilst the enzymes were good because it could ideally liberate some of these compounds, which we could then remove, uh, there was enough information to fully support if we were doing it the right way. And and when you're going into a commercial scale uh, with commercial volumes, it's a it's a big call to make without all the data there in front of us. So that's why we thought, well, the idea of building up on the wine uh, seemed to make a bit more sense to us. And then hoping to be able to treat it once those, uh, I guess those volatile phenols were liberated, uh, either during or post fermentation. You know, we even tried throwing the carbon and enzymes during the fermentation to hoping to remove them before they became, I guess, obvious at the end of fermentation. And I'm not sure how those results were, but from our point of view, yeah, building up on the wine did seem to make more sense at the time. From from our, I guess, from a from a commercial point of view, that's the way we had to look at it. So if I can just add to what Alex has said, um, I think the other issue with activator carbon is they're very different. So there's a range of different commercially available activator carbons out there and they don't all work the same. So some have different pore structure to them. So they'll take out smaller molecule or larger molecules. So when we're dealing with the volatile phenols, they're much smaller molecules. When we're dealing with the bound form, the glycosides are much larger so what we find is depending on that carbon you use and how it's actually been produced is going to influence which compounds it removes. So some are better at removing the smaller molecules, those volatile phenols. Some are better at the glycosides, so those larger molecules. So it's really hard to know if you just get thrown an activated carbon off the shelf here, chuck it in, it will work. It may not necessarily do what you want it to do because each activated carbon is different. And as Alex says, it's really hard at the juice stage to know how much do you add for the amount of taint you've got? So until there's a better guidance on that, I know it can be hard for winemakers to know what direction to take. The only issue then is obviously if you get to the stage where you get a um, smoke-affected wine, while you can do um, bench trials, which is a lot easier because obviously you can look at a sensory outcome and you can go, okay, what's optimal? What's the optimal dose to get the the best sensory outcome I can achieve? Um you can't do the same for juice, but sometimes it's not as easy removing some of those molecules in a, in a wine matrix versus a juice. So it is very complex and I can understand that winemakers could be very confused at that juice stage to know, well, how much do I add? Because I don't know what my sensory outcome is going to be at the end. So I think that's the biggest challenge in regards to, you know, treating juice. Okay. Alex, uh, I understand you've been directly involved in some trials of membrane filtration. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so that uh, that was to me the most exciting part of of the whole process was seeing it all come to um, fruition and and what it could do. And it's it's basically um, working with VA filtration and or VA Memstar as they used to be called. And the idea of the process was to 
um, one part of the unit was like a reverse osmosis. We split the the wine into, I guess, two components, and then treating the permeate via a, a, a membrane that would arguably strip or remove the smoke compounds or the uh, the volatile phenols. And and during that process, um, and undercover, we we found it had a lot of success. But again, the challenges with that were understanding as to what amount and what rate you you or how much you would have to do to remove those compounds before you again over overstrip the wine. But it's been a um a fascinating and and look to be honest, it's still early days when we did the trials a few a few weeks ago. But the uh, the results from an organoleptic point of view have been you know nothing short of outstanding. So yeah, I'm I'm very very excited about that particular part of the process. There's still a lot of information to learn from it and. Once we get the actual raw data from it, we'll be able to to pull it all together. But it has been a a, a very eye opening experience. Excellent, Julie. I'd like to pick up something you said earlier about blending. Can you can you help us understand how a winemaker can use blending to reduce the problem? So we've got a non smoke affected wine, nice and fruity, no faults, and obviously you've got the potential that you're able to blend that with your smoke affected wine. I guess the biggest issue is how smoke affected is your wine and how much volume do you have to actually blend with. So it's going to be a cost-benefit analysis to determine are you able to blend it away or not? Are you willing to sacrifice a wine that is um, of higher quality that then might be downgraded if you blend away with with the smoke affected wine? So the more obviously that you blend away with the non-affected um, product, then you'll you'll achieve a, a better result. But we've done some trials where we know that even in 25% of a smoke-affected Pinot Noir, the smoke was still obvious. So you kind of had to go to 12.5% of the smoke-affected and blend it away or below that to actually not detect the smoke tank. But, it you know, it depends on the levels of those smoke, smoke-affected wine, you know, how much is it affected. Um, but yeah, there's a potential obviously to blend it away. You need to also have considerations with have you got storage space to hold on to smoke affected wine over a few vintages and blend it away over a few vintages or not. So having just a plan in place to know what you can and can't achieve at your winery in the event that there is a bushfire and you've got some smoke affected fruit, do you harvest, do you not harvest? Do you look at making a rosé instead of a full bodied red? Sort of those decisions are, are really important. Alex, from a winemaker's point of view, what can you do with a wine that has been treated and is acceptable as a blending component? Look, I, I couldn't agree more with Julie where, where we found that the blending of parcels of, of wines that have been affected by smoke taint, you really couldn't use a huge amount, again, depending on, on the severity, in a blending opportunity uh, without the other complications of storage, you know, the whole logistics of that and how how much you have and how long it's going to take to blend away. It all becomes a very much a balancing act, especially when the, you know, the following year where you might have some very good parcels, you may not want to blend it away because you just don't have any fruit that you potentially might be downgrading to help get a, to, to help remove, I guess, some of the wine that you might have in bulk. But it's interesting with the, the trials that we did here in December where we were removing the smoke taint out of the wine the big question was, you know, how have, we, how have we gone too far or have we done enough? We did a small parcel where we purposely went a little bit above and beyond to try and remove more and in a way stripping the wine, but not to the point where 
it was, um, I guess, a neutral wine, but just trying to remove enough of the characters, but knowing full well that we're also removing some of the, the positive attributes of the wine. However, with the intention of trying to, again, build that wine back up. And we've just done a, a trial in our lab here where we're using um, yeast hulls from the 22 vintage from our Chardonnay, where we've put the yeast hulls back in, or the leaves, back into some sample bottles in a way of trying to build that wine back up. And in the just two weeks at 2.5% lees, um, we've seen a, a fantastic result. So we're going to try and take that to a larger 200-litre um, parcel size just to see how it actually looks over the, over the coming months. But to me, I, I, as a winemaker and as a business, I think that that's probably where I see more benefit um, is that after fermentation in a smoke-tainted year, we, we can remove the smoke taint and then build the wine back up. Yes, we may not be able to get to the same, you know, we may not be able to get the same price point as a reserve or a, a, a top shelf wine, but if we can create a beverage that is very consumer friendly, then to me, that's a win-win, not just for the winery, but also for the vineyard in the sense that we they can get a return on investment. Okay, well, it doesn't appear like there's any real silver bullet. Yeah, as Alex mentions, um, building the wine is really important. So, and and having the opportunity to do lots of trials with your actual wine and doing it on a small scale, so it means that you can look at the effect of things like oak chips or the carbons, the various carbons you can use, um, and the dose rates. So, we've done some work with some of the Victorian winemakers that were affected during the 2020 vintage, and they were just. Um, so surprised at how different all those activated carbons can be and also the differences in dose rates. So I know that some of them did a whole range of different bench trials where they were able to, you know, add in carbon, various carbons and ones that they know that they'll never touch again because they just resulted in a terrible result, but other ones that they know were their favourites and the best. So they've been shortlisted that in future, they're the ones they would go to. And then they can look at the what's optimal in terms of getting that sensory outcome. So you're never going to be able to remove all of that smoke tank character without stripping the wine completely. So having that balance of what's an optimal dose to remove some of that smoke tank by still retaining some of those desirable characters. So even if you look at other things, it, such as we've tried some stuff with oak chips, and even though we know that it's not removing the compounds, there could potentially be just adding a masking effect potentially. Now, it depends on obviously what wine you're looking at. You're going to have a very different result if it's pin on wild versus a Shiraz. Um, so just doing trials at different levels on smaller parcels to be able to see what's the outcome and is that going to add any benefit. And we do know that there are people out there in the commercial world that have got smoke-affected wine um, treated and be able to get it on the shelves. And sometimes that involves, yeah, just adding different gums and different materials, a little bit of oak, um, might have had a little bit of carbon treatment, but to therefore get it out onto the shelves and, and have yeah, people buying it. And I have heard stories where particular wine just um, ran off the shelves. So obviously it was, um, yeah, people were buying it. So that's kind of a semi-success story if you can talk about success when we're talking about smoke taint. Kerry, is there any other treatments that have shown any promise? We've been doing some work with spinning cone column distillation. We started off treating a couple of Cassegrain wines actually thinking that maybe that, um, that distillation process would, would remove the volatile phenols. Um, and actually what we found was they weren't as volatile as we thought. And so the volatile phenols and their glycoconjugates remained in the, in the treated wine. And so as we progressively stripped that wine, what we found was we were actually exacerbating the, the smoke taint um, and we removed all of the fruit character. So 
those smoky attributes just became more and more obvious and it became quite salty and, and quite sour. With hindsight, we could have gone back and treated that component with something like activated carbon, you know, to remove those smoke compounds and then maybe added back the ethanol on the aroma fraction that had been removed. Um, but that's 2020 hindsight, so that's a, another project. But with that same winery, um, we actually did some work um, with them. They had treated a, a smoke-affected juice. And interestingly, in that situation, the volatile phenols largely were removed um, through the distillation process. And we think there was sort of a salting out effect. So because there was a lot of sugar in the juice, it forced the, the volatile phenols into the headspace, and so they were removed. Um, and so when they ultimately um, fermented the, the juice that was recovered from the, the spinning cone column, treatment, um, they actually got much lower levels of, of smoke tank compounds than what we had seen in the initial juice. So we weren't able to take that through to a sensory outcome, but um, it, it's certainly a technology that I think is worth exploring further, particularly mm -hmm. for, well, I guess juice or wine treatment, but there's a little bit more work to be done, but some promising initial results. Sure, sure. And what about internationally? Is there anything else being evaluated? Yes, yeah, so more and more other research groups around the world are, are getting involved in in smoke taint research. Um, you know, as fires occur um, in wine regions elsewhere in the world, um, and so there's some promising results coming out of the US um, where they've been evaluating um, functional spray coatings and looking at whether that can prevent the uptake of smoke by grapes in the vineyard, and also some some other you know, protective um, sprays that can be used um, that are sort of tailored to, you know, applications in the in the vineyard. Um, and I guess after that, it's, it's around looking at more um, selective um, adsorbents. So, you know, adsorptive materials that are, you know, able to target those volatile phenols um, more directly and have less impact on the desirable wine constituents. So less removal of those desirable fruit characters. Well, thank you. And that uh, brings us to a close. Uh, I'd like to thank Julie, uh, Kerry and Alex, uh, the University of Adelaide, the Weight Research Institute. You can find these podcasts on Apple, Spotify or your favourite uh, podcast app. More information about these projects is available um, on the ASVO website, One Australia website. And AWRI has an extensive smoke tank uh, page and loads of information. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.